hearts. To prepare our hearts for the reading of God's word, let's read again this morning from Psalm 119. And where the lines are bolded, you may join in. Let us prepare to hear God's word by praying together these words from Psalm 119. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually, forever and ever. And I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate upon your statutes. For those who are able, please rise for the reading of God's word from Deuteronomy 5 and also chapter 6. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you 
all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The word of the Lord. I invite you to join with me in prayer. Father, we have just sung uh, that your words are wonderful, uh, that in your word we have life. And so we ask uh, even now um, that this would be a time where we commune with you, where we would hear you, and as we hear you speak to us, that you would give our soul's life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have found, and I think you probably would agree with this when you think about it, that it is not easy to love well. I remember when I was in college hearing from one of my uh, professors, he shared a story about when he was in his first year of marriage, near, nearing the end of his first year, and for the first time he had to figure out what he would get his new bride, his wife, for their first anniversary. And this was the first time, of course, he was doing something like that, so he tried to think, like, what would be a meaningful gift? Would it be a way that he could express the way that he wants to care for her, that he wants to protect her? And so on the day of the anniversary, he comes to her, and there before her are four high-quality, fantastic tires. That was the gift. And um, he realized the tears he saw were not tears of joy. Now, I liked that illustration because, you know, like, it, I thought it was funny, and then, but then I, I realized this is unfortunately not within our first year of marriage. This was a few years after that I got a one-time Jennifer a birthday gift that was, I mean, I, we, I won't go into all the details, but it was uh, practical, um, plastic, and from Walmart. And those are not the three things you most want to say about a birthday gift. And thankfully, she was gracious, and yet I could tell this wasn't the ideal thing, and I, I returned and got her something better. Um, the thing about gift giving is it, it kind of brings into focus that question, like, what does it look like for me to love another person well? Like, how do I understand that person well? But of course, it's not just that. It's not just in marriage. I mean, we're, we're constantly trying to figure that. If you are a parent, you feel that question keenly, don't you? Especially because your kids have this annoying habit of getting older, right? Like, you know, you feel like you understand how you're supposed to maybe love your five or six-year-old, you're just starting to figure it out, and then they get to like seven or eight, and then adolescence. I mean, uh, people talk about the time of adolescence being an awkward time. They don't necessarily talk about how the time of parenting adolescence is also an awkward time, right? I mean, we are trying to figure out what it looks like to love our our kid, and, and we keep on wanting to treat them like the cute six-year-old, and we realize that's not how it works anymore. It's it's difficult, it's difficult to know how to love people well. Um, now, I bring this up because there is a, a way in which that is also true about God. Now, of course, our relationship with God is different. I mean, God doesn't change. We're not having to navigate that. But, but we are also 
very clearly called to love him. That's how the end of the passage, the, the reading that we just had, we had what Jesus later will call the greatest commandment. Here, listen, Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. We're called to love God with all of our energy, all of our being, all of our life is, is ultimately about this, loving God. This is what we were made for. This is what we want to do well when we see things clearly. So how? How do we love our God well? That might seem like a strange question to ask, overly analytical, and of course I am analytical, but I do think there's some validity to that. That it's not just enough to have a lot of good feeling and a lot of devotion. There's more to it, isn't there? I mean, that is what we saw, actually, if we think back a couple of weeks ago, when when the people of Israel are feeling kind of disconnected from God, Moses is on Mount Sinai, they're feeling far from him, they want to connect to God. They want to feel close to him. They want to love him in some ways. And so how do they express love? They get all of their most valuable stuff and they make a cow. And then they spend a couple of days worshiping this cow to honor their God and, and offering things. And there was devotion, there was emotion, there was all sorts of good feeling. And yet God says, this is not the way you love me. You are making me into an object. I refuse to be received in this way. Which suggests that, that all the devotion and good feeling and goodwill in the world is not necessarily enough to get it right. It is worth us asking the question, so how do we love God well? And thankfully, we, we have a God who loves us, and in his love, he never keeps us just kind of guessing so that we try to figure it out, and then we get it wrong and gets kind of frustrated with us. That's not how God works. God specifically says, here's how we're going to relate. That's, that's what, when we talk about a covenant, a covenant is a definition of how love works, the shape that it takes. And, and God, when, he's, when he meets with his people of Israel around Mount Sinai, and there, there, God says, here's the covenant. This is what it looks like for you to have a relationship with me. This is how you are to love me well. And he gives what we just read, some of the most famous verses in all the Bible, the Ten Commandments. This is a summary of how God's people, how Israel are to love God well. And if we, if we are attentive to it, the difficulty, of course, is we're so familiar with it, but we're attentive, we begin to see there are some surprises in what this looks like. I mean, the first one maybe we've already mentioned, that, that it's not just about devotion. God says in the second commandment, don't make an image of me. That's not how you worship me. Worship me on my terms. Last week, we encountered another surprise, which, again, we only don't realize how surprising it is often because we're so familiar with it, that when God says to his people, do you want to know how to love me? Do you want to know how to express your devotion to me in a way that is pleasing to me? I want you to rest. I want you to know that I made you to enjoy the goodness of my creation. You will love me well by resting. This morning, I want us to consider one more surprise that God has for his people when he says, this is what it looks like to love me. And it's probably the one that is the subtlest one of all. It's the one that we are most likely to miss if we are not attentive. And so, to kind of help us to look at this, maybe from a different pair of eyes, I want us to kind of, like we did last week, step back and, and consider 
how other nations, other peoples viewed the way their God related to them. Remember, we talked about whether we're talking about the Babylonian gods or whether we're talking about the Greek gods. It seems like the only thing those gods cared about their people was that their people did their dirty work. As long as people did the stuff the gods needed, then the gods were happy. What you don't see is Zeus ever giving a Ten Commandments or Helen, or any of the Greek deities. And here's why, because they do not care whether you love each other. They do not care whether you're stealing, or whether you're killing, or whether you're committing adultery. As long as you get them food, that's all that matters. And here we have something different. What, have you ever thought about how strange this actually is? That, that when God gathers his people, and he wants to summarize, this is what it looks like for you to love me with all of your being, more than half of the instructions he gives are about how we relate to each other. Even Moses comments on how strange that is. He says, what other God gives commands like this who draws so near and gives us these kinds of instructions? This is not normal. Or at least it doesn't seem normal. In fact, there's actually a contemporary aspect to this if you think about it. This kind of question, I think, continues today. Have you Ever heard people say, I understand that we're supposed to love God, we're supposed to worship Him, but does He really care what we do in our bedroom? Or sometimes I think we've heard, you know, a, a strange kind of bifurcation where it's like you're supposed, to, you're supposed to preach the gospel at church. We don't need to hear about stuff like race, about justice. Just talk about how we love Jesus as if God doesn't care about the race and justice part. He just wants us to love Him by worshiping Him. We even feel that, I think, sometimes in the way that we just live our lives. We, we understand that, that this, what we're doing right now, or, or maybe in the morning time if we have a chance to pray or read God's, God's Word, that that is a way that we can express our love for Him. But it's so much harder sometimes when we're just kind of like in a business meeting or crunching numbers in a spreadsheet to see this in any way as related to loving God. And yet the surprise that we have here in the Ten Commandments is one instruction after another about theft, about telling the truth, about committing adultery, about all of these things. Again and again, God is saying, here's how you love me, by loving others well. And I think the reason for this, if we try to kind of figure out why that is, is actually really simple. If you love someone, you are going to care about the things that they care about. Right? I mean, if I love you and you have children, then, then for me to say I care about you deeply, but I couldn't care at all about your kids doesn't make sense because you love your kids. If I love them, I'm going to care about them. If I love you, I'm going to care about them as well. And, and that's the truth with God. If we love God, he, we will care about the very things that he cares deeply about. And the crazy, remarkable truth is that God cares about so God says, if you're going to love me, then you're going to need to love each other because I care about all of you. Let me kind of try teasing that out. We don't have time to look at all of the commandments. You could do a sermon on each one of them, but I'm just going to then kind of like look at, at three of them to see how, how we see this, this love of God being displayed in the way he gives us these instructions. 
So I'll start with verse 18. I know I have a reputation that whenever anything's related to sex, I give Nick that sermon and I like, you know, go on vacation. So I, I feel like I have to talk about this one just to kind of negate that. So you have verse 18 that says, first, you shall not commit adultery, which is, of course, a, an instruction, a command that we are supposed to protect sex and keep it within the context of a marriage covenant. Sex right now is something that we have gotten so distorted. Everything is so sexualized, isn't it? I mean, even toothpaste somehow in an ad is somehow made related to sexiness. And, and because of that, we have this, this construct where we think of sex purely almost in terms of desire and fulfillment. But I want us to pull back and, and, and think about it from a, from a different angle. From maybe more of a kind of a communal angle. And, and to recognize that that sex lies near the very heart of two of the greatest gifts that God has given us. One of them, of course, is, is the covenant of marriage, that, that God has created us in such a way that then he can, we have this opportunity to unite ourselves with one other person in a lifelong, mutual giving of each other, and, and sex is meant as this physical expression to reinforce and strengthen that. It's remarkable. And then the other is we are able to see human lives enter into the world. And of course, sex is at the very beginning of what brings that forth. Which means, sex, when it is, when it is properly understood, when it is meeting its designed goal, it's not just something that has a, a private benefit. It is something that is incredibly important at a communal level. Because it strengthens and reinforces marriages and households that provide stability to the community. That it enables us as a human species to continue on as we see more life enter this world. It is incredibly important for us as a community. Of course, when it is removed from that context, when it is removed from this, this covenant of mutual self-giving... It can become destabilized, and when it becomes misused, it can become so destructive. I mean, haven't we seen this with Me Too, how with power imbalances, it moves from mutual self-giving to taking? How pornography shows that it can be a, a form of using another person. More specifically, when we're thinking of adultery, adultery is this violation of an oath, a breaking of trust. It, it rips apart a family and oftentimes means that children then are living and growing up in an incredibly unstable environment comparatively. So when God gives us this commandment, he is showing what he cares about. He, he cares about protecting the health of our marriages. He cares about protecting community stability. He cares about protecting children, that they're able to grow up in a good environment. God, this matters to God. Do you realize that, that our, our marital health and enjoyment is something that God cares about? That God cares about the heartbreak of betrayal. He cares about innocence being stolen. He cares about children feeling heartbroken with, with the breakup of their own family. He, he cares about community that can sometimes be destabilized through divorce. God cares about these things. 
And he invites you to join with him in having these same loves and concerns. We, we show our love for God when we subordinate our, our sexual physical desires to a deeper love for each other. We show our love for God if we are married when we seek to cause our marriages to continue to flourish and grow. We show our love for God as a community when we seek to support families, when we seek to support single parents so that we can be a place where children grow up and flourish. This matters to God, and if we love God, this will matter to us as well. That's what we're meant to understand here. Or, or verse 19, you shall not steal. When we hear this command, I think probably most naturally when we think of theft, we think of like burglary of someone breaking in. And that, of course, is part of what's involved here. And that is part of the injustice that God is speaking against. But I think we need to pair this with another image. If you've seen It's a Wonderful Life, I want you to think of Mr. Potter. Do you remember Mr. Potter, this like crotchety old man with all sorts of money that kept on using his money to try to accumulate more and more and more. And scripture says that actually is a form of theft as well. In, in the law of Moses, it speaks of those who are wealthy with their land, they are to allow the poor to be able to kind of walk through the crops and take whatever is left over. That the same wealthy are called to lend to the poor without interest so that they can be moved out of their position. At times, even, the wealthy are told that they're supposed to forgive their debts. And one of the commandments is you are not supposed to hoard. And all of that is devoted towards the same idea, that God is seeking our mutual enjoyment of the good things of this world. Because God cares about that, which is a remarkable thing. Just think about this. God, we sometimes think of God being so concerned about our souls, and we make sure that we're praying, and we make sure we're hearing God's word, and of course he cares about that, but he cares about your bodies as well. God delights in you being able to have good meals and nice clothing and, and pleasant places to live in. And he doesn't just care about that for you, he cares about that for us. Deuteronomy at one time holds out this hope that there would be no poor amongst you. And that is showing what God's desire is that every single person would be able to enjoy the good things that he has made for this world. God, God cares. It speaks of how God, God especially sides with the poor, with the widow. And the reason is, uh, for that is simple. God is wanting everyone to be able to enjoy these things, especially those people who are vulnerable. God is with until they are able to experience what everyone else is able to experience. This is what matters to God, and, and we are called to join with Him. If we want to love God well, we will pursue these very same things. The Westminster uh, Catechism, I think, helpfully describes what it looks like for us to seek to follow what verse 19 is telling us. It says that those who are obeying this command will endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own. If you want to show how much you love God, if you want to, to love God well, you look around and say, how can I help others grow in wealth? In a way of, that is, others grow in their enjoyment of the good things of this world. Where is their injustice? How can I bring justice? Where is their poverty? How can I lift them into dignity? Where are there people without jobs? How can I help them find jobs? As we do these things, we are showing our love for God because if we love God, we care about what he cares about. And he cares about this. 
Or final, one, uh, verse 20. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Again, oftentimes when we hear this verse, we kind of generalize it to speaking about how we are called to be truthful, and that is definitely part of how to understand it. But it's, I think, useful to recognize that what's especially focusing on is how we represent others, bearing witness about others truthfully. In that time, your name meant almost everything. For you needed for your name to be honorable if you wanted to be able to conduct business with others in an atmosphere of trust. Your name had to be honored for you to be able to maintain relationships with others, for your children to be able to marry other families' kids. If someone spoke a word, a false word that, that brings your name down, that was almost like a social form of murder, it was removing you from the community and ostracizing, and if there was ever a time where people might take sides, it could rip an entire community apart. So when God is saying, you must not bear false witness, he is not only speaking about a community being a truthful community, although that is definitely the case, he's speaking of a community that needs to be a whole community, one that is not ripped apart by suspicion, by accusation, by slander. He is saying, I care that you don't be misunderstood, that you don't be justly, unjustly accused. I care that the, the woven cloth of community do not be ripped, but it's whole. That matters to me. And so it should matter to us. It strikes me, actually, that, that this aspect to this command is very relevant right now. I'm sure you've noticed this, that we are in a highly, highly anxious time as a society. And, and one of the ways that I think we respond to that anxiety is we, we filter everyone into friends and enemies. There's just these, this strong line in society. There's the good guys, and there's the bad guys, and there's nothing in between. And really, all it takes is a single word to move someone from the friend to the enemy category. Someone's a homophobe. Someone's a racist. It doesn't even really matter that much if it's true. In a moment, someone is ostracized. And we would hope that as Christians, we are different from that. That we are a community that maintains unity, but if we just look around, we realize that those same lines are being drawn between the good guys and the enemies. And again, all it takes is a word. The person's woke. I don't even know what that means, but it's bad. He's on the other side, or the person's a fundamentalist. We don't understand what we're saying, but we're willing to kind of, we hear something, we pass it along, we make these lines, and suddenly there's the good guys and the bad guys, and, and we're not careful at times. And I'm saying not just us as a church. I'm saying as a church throughout the country, there is a lack of carefulness that we are saying what is true. And God says, you need to understand, if you love me, you will care about what I care about. And I care about connectedness. I care about community. I care about truth. I care about trust. You must not speak in such a way where you're just glibly throwing things around without being concerned about their truthfulness, ripping communities apart in doing so. We love God when we are quick to listen and slow to speak. We love God when we work hard to understand those with whom we disagree and are measured in our judgments. We love God well when we are very careful with whatever labels that we might use. As we seek to care about what he cares about, the wholeness and connectedness of the church community. Do you see the pattern here? Again and again, God 
it shows that he is deeply invested, that he deeply cares about the things about our life, about families and marriage and children and relationships, about our enjoyment of wealth, about the way we connect to each other as a community. These things matter to God. And we don't just see this here in the Ten Commandments. If we were to move into the New Testament, you know what James says when he says, pure and undefiled religion is this. Do you remember what he says? Do you know what he says? I mean, like, if we were to try to fill this out, what is pure religion? What is the way that we're supposed to love God? Well, oftentimes I think we would think pure religion is to pray. Pure religion is to sing and worship. Pure religion is to listen to God's word. And all of those things are true. But what does James zero in on? He says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James is saying, here's how you love God, by loving those who are vulnerable. And of course, isn't that what Jesus says? Right before he goes to the cross, when Jesus is meeting with his disciples in this upper room discourse, as it's sometimes described, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This, he's saying, you want to know how to love me? Keep my commandments. And then he goes on to say, and here is my commandment. A new commandment I give to you. Love each other as I have loved you. That's how you love me. That's how you love God. Love each other as I have loved you. And, and, and how has he loved us? How has God loved us? We see what happens next. Where, where Jesus goes to the cross because of his love for us. He, he lays down his life unto death because of his love for us. He is risen from the dead and brings about this new creation where now relationships are healed. The relationship between us and God, but not only that, between us and each other, where one day we will enjoy the world more fully. He has done all of this because of his love for us. And he says, if you love me, you will join with me in that same love. And here's the thing, just as I'm concluding, that when I think if you are anything like me as I hear this, this, this call to love each of you, to love each other, not just us, but even the world around us in the way that Jesus loves, this laying down life, seeking the good of the others, it is both beautiful to me and yet so daunting. Because I, I know like the, the, the pebble-sized capacity I often feel like I have to love. And so as, if this is what it looks like to love God well, it can feel so defeating. And that's, that's why it's important as we conclude to understand one, one more, I suppose you could say, one more surprise to all of this. And that is that when God invites us to love with the very same love, he means that quite literally. Because scripture speaks of how when we place our faith in Christ, Christ doesn't just give us wholeness with God, but he gives us his very spirit. The very same spirit that was at work in Jesus, enabling him to lay down his life, is now at work in you and me. And, and renewing and rebuilding and, and slowly giving within us this capacity to love each other as Jesus loved us. Which means these commands that we have been considering, they're not, they're not just instructions, they are that. They're not just an invitation to a better way, they are that. But they are promises. 
This is what you and I are becoming. This is what our community is becoming, a community that is able to, to flourish and grow and love each other well and share with each other well because that is what the Spirit is doing in us.